Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. My name's Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, I'm gonna be talking about the Google product update, and no, it's not a new one. I'm talking about the one from March. So, a little, little behind the news here, but there's a reason for it. I mean, I, I don't like to react too quickly to just about anything, but these product review updates uh, have been coming out for a little while, and they're just kind of building on each other, and I decided I would do show on it. Since I usually avoid these sort of things, I decided to uh, do a little research and this show is the result. Now, before we get to it, I want to thank one of the sponsors and that is Otis Global. That's O-D-Y-S dot global. They're the source for aged domains with strong branding and powerful backlinks. The featured domain for today is called sellingfearlessly.com and it was the domain from a an author, a guy named uh, Robert Turson, and it was basically to promote this book called Selling Fearlessly, A Master Salesman's Secrets for the One Call Close Salesperson. It just sounds terrible. I think I would hate to meet that guy, Robert. But uh, the book apparently is still available over on Amazon. And I don't know Robert, but I, I just, that sort of one call closing sort of phrasing makes me, uh, it makes me throw up in my mouth, you know, it's, it's gross. I don't even want to deal with it. But anyway, this book had uh, some articles as well as a, you know, sort of brochure to sell the book. So it was created back in 2011. So it's 11 years old as a domain rating and authority. Both are 34, at least the time that I'm recording this. And it has, uh, of course, a broad history of sales and marketing. So you could take it in that same direction with sort of B2B sales or even uh, potentially like B2C sales or direct to consumer, any kind of sales I think it would fall into. And you can orient it around digital marketing, outbound marketing, general content marketing, social media, and so on. And really, it could be a huge funnel for many things that anything you want to do, really. I mean, you could have your own coaching practice. You could have a, you know, a team of coaches that help coach businesses. Of course, this would take some time to set up. You could just have sort of a general business and marketing website as well, where you have informational content and then perhaps you uh, have some affiliate offers to courses. Often uh, these kinds of sales courses are very high ticket and usually have a pretty good affiliate program. There are over 297, or I guess there are 297 referring domains and 241 or do follow. They are from crazy good websites like HubSpot.com, Social Media Today, The Old Reader, Care.com, LinkedIn, and so on. It's still indexed in Google and has a lot of branded anchor text. If you join Otis using my affiliate link, you can get $100 in your account. And if you purchase something, I might get a commission, which I greatly appreciate. So thanks a lot to Otis Global. And let's get to the main topic of the show, the March Google product update. So typically, I don't really comment on the Google updates until, you know, sometimes maybe not at all, unless a specific question comes in. And sometimes I, I don't 
comment at all about the Google updates. Occasionally, I'll get a live stream question from the chat where someone asks, and usually it is you know right when the updates are coming out. And at that point, there's very little to no information about the product update or about the specific update. And this product review update obviously hits affiliate reviews uh, specifically, and we'll t- we're going to talk about it today. Now, in sort of true form of my, I, I describe it as laziness, but I guess it's maybe, let's think of it as efficiency. Let's put a positive spin on it. But I'm looking at an article here, thesearchengineland.com. This article is written by Barry Schwartz. I'll link it in the description. I'm going to read um, you know, large chunks of it as appropriate and give my commentary and thoughts about it. And if you are a longtime listener of the show and kind of, you know, you go along for the ride with me and you kind of, you can identify and relate to the, my approach for SEO and product reviews and stuff, you know, a lot of this is not going to be a big surprise. And that is part of the reason why I don't usually comment too much on the Google updates, you know, aside from not having much more information, if you have a pretty conservative approach, then usually there's not too many surprises. And sure, you know, even if you're doing everything by the book, you can, your site can be impacted by a core algorithm update, but you know, there's at, at times there's not much you can do about it. Um, and you know, nowadays it's not like you can make changes and then instantly have, uh, you know, the impact reversed. So we're going to dig into a couple of the details here. And as normal, I'll tell some random stories at the end. So if you do want to read further, you can check out the search engine land link again, written by Barry Schwartz. This was um, published on March 23rd. So a few months back and I'm actually recording this pretty far in advance from the time that you're going to be listening to it. And, you know, shit, hopefully there's not another algorithm update that are that is product review focused. But if so, I have a hunch that it'll just be more of the same. It'll be the same stuff again. So let's get started here. A little history. You know, this is the third version, the March 2022 algorithm update um, or the product review update was the third version of a product review update. And essentially it is targeting the content and trying to rank um, product review related content that is most helpful and useful to the searcher. So, you know, a lot of times when people ask me a question that's very SEO focused and I don't know the answer, I will lean on this crutch, and that is if you have a decision to make or maybe a few different options and one of them is really SEO-focused and very deep in the weeds, think about the visitor. Just think about the searcher who's trying to solve their problem, and if you can get inside their head and try to help that person out, you're probably going to be in better shape than if you try to outsmart the algorithm, which is you know, difficult to do, you're guessing at best, and it's really hard to get clean sort of experimental data. And in order for, you know, someone's 
n of one case study to be relevant, I mean, you have to have a whole lot of data and you have to run the test and you have to run the negative test. It's been a while, but I interviewed Kyle Roof and he emphasized the point, you know, we can we can run tests and that is hard to do. You know, you have to have the control and you have to really isolate the variables so that you're only testing one thing. A multivariable experiment is, you know, virtually impossible to do. And Kyle emphasized, you know, once you run your test and once you run your experiment, which is difficult, then you have to run the reverse to ensure that your conclusion is correct and it's not just um, a correlation and it's actually, you know, it's there's a cause and effect situation there. Kyle explained it much better than me, but that's the gist of it. All right. The first product review update was April 8th, 2021. The second Product review update was December 1st, 2021. And then March 23rd, 2022 was the third. And it had the very unoriginal name, clearly named by one of the engineers, March 2022 product review update. Original. Okay. So basically, Google wants to promote review content that is above and beyond much of the templated information you see on the web. And Google said it would promote these kind of reviews and its search result rankings. So keep in mind, Google is not directly punishing lower quality content that have, you know, quote, thin content that simply summarizes a bunch of products. However, if you provide such content and you find your rankings are demoted because other content is promoted above yours, it'll feel like a penalty. But the thing is, it's not actually a penalty It's just Google ranking things higher that are better quality. So it's not a penalty and it's a semantic thing, but occasionally, you know, people will ask me, hey, um, I think I have a penalty on my site. And I'm like, did you get an email that said you have a manual penalty? If they say no, then they didn't get penalized. Maybe other shit is just ranking above it. I could use a better word than that. Maybe other sites, other results are ranking above their site. So technically, the update should have only impacted product review content and not other kinds of content. However, I believe, you know, there's a lot of, uh, well, there's a lot of content out there. So other things could have gotten mixed up with, uh, with this update for sure, especially if things are ranking sort of outside. Um, I guess I'm trying to think of the right way to say it. If if results are ranking in uh, in an area where they're not trying to rank, so for example, maybe that's a better way to put it. Um, if you have an e-commerce site and a product page, but it's ranking for a you know an affiliate type review sort of keyword, then you may be impacted, or vice versa. So keep that in mind. But the main idea, they're trying to they're trying to have better reviews. And I think part of this is going to come out as I uh, explain more here, but there are there are reviews where there's just not a ton of detail, but there is some information in there that is helpful. And it can still be sort of curated information through research, through looking at uh, like forums and the manufacturer's website. And you could actually put together a pretty good review. I think, you know, part of what Google is after here is 
some of the very large websites that basically, and I'm thinking there, there's a bunch of uh, like technical uh, websites that have this. I feel like maybe, shit, I don't know if it's TechCrunch, but there's like, uh, you know, maybe PC Magazine, PCMag.com and some other, you know, pretty high tech and usually electronic or software focused websites where they'll have the list of products and, and they're, they're old websites that have a ton of backlinks, high authority. They can rank really easily for stuff, even though there's not much content. And a lot of times these sites will just have like five items. They'll have a picture. They'll have the name of the item. They'll have a, say like a three or four sentence paragraph a little bit of information about each one of the products, but it's not actually a review. It's not actually helpful. They never compare any of the products to one another. They don't provide any details on the specs, on the features or anything like that. It's literally just, it looks like it's sort of um, the bullet point of the product, like the, the shortest amount of information that they could have. And they just, they throw them up on the site and they're, they're not very good. It doesn't really help. It just curates a list of, you know, a list of products out there. They may link to, you know, newegg.com, Amazon, um, b Photo. Like there's a bunch of places they might link to, but it's, it's really just a landing page with like five products listed. It could be 10, whatever, but you get the point. There's really not that much info. So back to the article here. So what has changed with the third release of the product review update? Google said the update builds on the work of the first two product updates to enhance Google's ability to identify high quality product reviews. This will make it easier for us to get sound purchasing advice in front of users and to reward creators who are earnest in being helpful. And that is a quote from Alan Kent of Google. So there are a few bullet points that they highlighted here, the criteria of what matters with product reviews update. So include helpful, in-depth details like the benefits or drawbacks of a certain item, specifics of how a product performs or how the product differs from previous versions. Next is, is it an odd way to say it? So come, the product review should come from people who have actually used the products and show what the product is physically like or how it's used. Next one is they want to include unique information beyond, beyond what the manufacturer provides, like visuals, audio, or links to other content dealing, detailing the reviewer's experience. And finally, they want to cover comparable products or explain what sets of product what sets a product apart from its competitors. So that, like I said, if you are writing decent reviews and doing some research, you're probably doing most of this already. Now, some of it is a little bit what I believe very hard to prove, right? So they say. One of those points, the second one, people who have actually used the products and show what the product is physically like or how it's used. So technically, a writer, someone can write an article, a review, without touching the product and still have a decent review out there. I know, you know, people may challenge me on this a little bit, and that's a fair uh, assumption. But one example that I can give 
usually there's a lot of speculation involved with this, but whenever Mac, whenever Apple is putting out new products and it could be a phone, like the new version of the iPhone or the new MacBook Pros or whatever, and they will release some specs. They'll give us a little bit of information before the products are available. And if you pay attention, you will see there are YouTube videos, especially there are posts all over where people haven't touched the product. It's not even available. It's impossible for them to have done an actual review. And they put out information based on a spec sheet or just whatever little information they have. They even speculate. They may not even know what you know the new processor is going to be, but they'll speculate based on what they know and historical information. It doesn't mean it's a bad review. It just means you can put a review out there without having all the information, without touching it and holding it or anything like that or using it because that's sometimes all the information you have. I'm not saying that's the best way to do it either. It is a possibility. So, okay. So those are the main things with this this update. We're going to go a little bit deeper here too. Uh, Historically, and you can keep this in mind in in the future, this particular update rolled out over the course of a few weeks and, you know, this is a, a little bit, uh, I think this one was a little bit shorter just because it wasn't a full core update. Core updates can take a few weeks. Um, sometimes these smaller updates are a little bit faster. Of course, by now, I think this whole update has been rolled out for months, for m- many months by now. Okay, so what's impacted? Uh, Google said this update may in the future impact those who, quote, create product reviews in any language but Google said the initial rollout is English, <laughs> English language product reviews. And I think, again, we can keep this in mind. This has already been rolled out and everything. But in the future, when these updates roll out, you can probably assume that it's, it's happening in English language product reviews first. And then after that, it could be rolled out you know, further to all languages that you know Google has a presence on. Okay, so here's some advice from Google on the previous product review updates. These still apply for the third update. It applies for you know everything moving forward. And I would encourage you to think about the the trend, right? So before Google didn't give a fuck, right? They'll they'll <laughs> they'll rank whatever. And, you know, I suspect they're trying to do their best. Sometimes some spammy or bad bad sites rank that don't actually have good reviews. And I think you could observe this if you go look around and hunt and try to find it. You can find, you know, some bad sites have made it through the filters here. But generally, if you think about the trend where they're trying to get better reviews, they're trying to get more authentic reviews with information that can help the searcher as much as possible. That is the trend that it's going in. So I wouldn't expect this to move in a different direction at all. And let's just knock some of these out and keep keep all this in mind that uh, you know there's a little flexibility you know here and there. And I would say, like most things, you don't have to get everything right. You just have to get a lot of things right. Get most things right, mostly right. Uh, most of the time, and you'll probably be in good shape. 
So the focus overall is providing users with content that provides insightful analysis and original research, content written by experts or enthusiasts who know the topic well. And that was a quote. And Google said, um, you know, several other things, but that's the gist of it. So that's similar to the advice for core update recommendations that we've mentioned above. But here's a list of useful questions to consider in terms of product reviews. So Google does recommend that your product reviews cover these areas that I'm about to read out and you answer these questions. So ask yourself, do your product reviews express expert knowledge about the products where appropriate? Do your product reviews show what the product is like physically or how it's used with unique content beyond what's provided by the manufacturer? So in this case, I would think about images and I've talked to a few people recently with uh, some of the case studies that I've been featuring. And I think, and I've heard from a few people now, like having your own unique images, not stock images, but pictures that you took yourself goes a long way to number one, add authenticity, but it seems like it might be helping out in terms of rankings. I don't know. I have no I haven't done any personal research on this, but it does make sense. If this is an emphasis that Google is talking about, having your own images goes a long way. If you do video, that's great too. Now, question is, right? Let's say you have a product review, you're focusing on the written word and you want to put a video in there cuz Google is saying, you know, unique content beyond what's provided by the manufacturer. So, Let's say you want to put a YouTube video in there, but you didn't create it and you just embed a video. Does that count? Like you didn't create the video. It's just some video that you found out there. How does Google know? How does YouTube know that it's your video or just one that you embedded? People have different YouTube accounts and Google accounts and all that stuff. So how do they know if it's really one that you created or not? I don't know. Now, if it's an image, and that image doesn't show up anywhere else on the internet, then Google does know that it's a unique image versus like a stock image where it's you know all over the place. And they could, they could see that, I suspect. Okay, next. Do your product reviews provide quantitative me- measurements about how a product measures up in various categories of performance? So this could be data that you get somewhere else. It could be data that you put together And essentially, you know, you're looking at the quantitative measurements. So that's pretty interesting. Do your product reviews explain what sets a product apart from its competitors? So that, I believe, is something that you can write without having the product. You can just look at a spec sheet. You can read and and maybe watch videos and understand what makes certain products different. Further, right, if you follow along with the templates that we talk about, uh, at Niche Site Project and on the YouTube channel and everything, like you already have this. You already have a lot of this in there. It makes sense to have a comparison chart or talk about one product versus another. A product review uh, keyword type is blank product, basically product one versus product two. So it's a versus thing where you literally spend the whole article talking about what sets a product apart from another one. So 
that's probably already done if you're doing high quality reviews already. Next, do your product reviews cover comparable products to consider or explain which products might be best for certain uses or circumstances? Again, you probably have this in your reviews already. It could be best product for a budget, best product for uh, like high spenders, best product for travel, right? There's a lot of different pieces, best product for dogs. George using my feet here and I'm, I'm always unoriginal. I just look at what's around me. So do your product reviews discuss the benefits and drawbacks of a particular product based on research into it? So that's a weird way to phrase it, but basically do you have the benefits and drawbacks, which is pros and cons? Again, probably already have that in there. This is a good one uh, coming up that a lot of people um, maybe don't put in there unless they're they're in the niche and they know about it. So do your product reviews describe how a product has evolved from previous models or releases to provide improvements, address issues, and otherwise help users in making a purchase decision. So that's something that, you know, we might not think about too often, but, you know, quick example, um, I'm, I'm talking a lot about guitars here um, in, in recent episodes. In fact, I have a long tangent coming up in an upcoming episode in, in a few weeks here where I talk about my latest new guitar. And I was doing a little research on amps. I don't need an amp, but you know, why not? I, I heard a podcast talking about, um, it's a Fender Blues Junior. It's a 15 watt tube amp. And they were talking about, you know, version three versus version four. And they were like, oh, do you got the, the three or the four? Like four is so much better because of this. I think four is better. And three, you know, I had, I had a three and it was really good, but I had to do all these modifications on it and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, if you can get version four, get version four. And, you know, sure enough, I went over to sweetwater.com, big music uh, store. I think they, I mean, they do a ton of business. They're out of Fort Wayne, Indiana. I've actually been to the, the big showroom there. They do a ton online, big e-commerce. Um, but they had version three and version four of the blues junior, which, you know, I was like, ah, you know, which, which one do you get? And I, I couldn't remember. And I, I think there was a reasonable price difference, but I can't remember which anyway, you know, I'd have to go and research, like, do I want version three or do I want version four? That is really important. Plus, if you're in the used market, you maybe have the option to get like a version two, three or four or whatever. And when you look at, you know, maybe cameras and DSLRs and stuff, another thing I'm interested in, I mean, I can get a, I can get a pretty decent DSLR that's like 10 years old. And it would probably do a fine job, maybe six years old. It would do a fine job for me and it would be a fraction of the price. And if I don't need 4K and I'm okay with, you know, 1080p and 24 frames a second, like I could do everything I need to do and I can put it in my studio and maybe I can get that camera for like 170 bucks used versus you know, getting a brand new one. So anyway, that sort of level of detail, and I'm, I'm making a point here, even though I'm going deep in the weeds and stuff that 
you know, I'm interested in, but maybe you're not. <laughs> but that level of detail, I know that shit because I'm in the weeds and I understand those particular products. And it kind of goes back to one of the first points, which is expertise and enthusiasm and about the products. Like I know about these things because I'm in the niche and I know, I know guitars a little bit and I know amps and I know cameras and stuff. So that kind of information could be really interesting for someone trying to buy, you know, maybe a high ticket item like that. Next, identify, does your review identify key decision-making factors for the product's category and how the product performs in those areas? For example, a product, a, a product review for a car might determine that fuel economy, safety, and handling are key decision factors and rate performance in those areas. Great example, nothing to add there. Does your product review describe key choices and how a product has been designed and their effect on the users beyond what the manufacturer says? So basically, design choices. And this would be, you know, going back to the Fender Blues Junior example, version three verse, versus version four. So, you know, num- number one, there were changes made between the versions, which we've talked about, but those were based on what users' feedback was, or maybe it was a manufacturing uh, decision and they changed it for some, you know, external reason, but it turns out, you know, the sound's better because of that. Does your product review provide evidence such as visuals, audio, or other links of your own experience with the product to support your expertise and reinforce the authenticity of your review? Again, I think if you, you know, have visuals, right? If you have pictures, if you provide audio, I, I mean, I guess they're suggesting, you know, potentially creating an MP3, maybe putting in a podcast. I'm not sure. I don't know how they can tell if it's your own stuff. Again, I think the images, if they're on your website, like that totally makes sense that you own that, but any sort of external stuff, like you may have your own, uh, let's say it's an Instagram and you have reels and you do product reviews on there and longer form videos and you embed your Instagram uh, post or reel or whatever is appropriate in your post. I don't know if they could tell like who that originates from and if it was associated with a brand, not your individual blog, they wouldn't necessarily like draw the connection. There may be nothing in common as far as like the name of course, you know, Google and the algorithm wouldn't be able to know your email account associated with your blog and your Instagram, right? Like that is not a ranking factor. I, don't, I would be, I mean, they can't get that information anyway, right? Hopefully not. Hopefully everything's, I guess I was going to say, hopefully they're not selling all the information back and forth, but they are, right? They're selling all of our data all over the fucking place. But they're not using it for ranking as far as I know. Okay. Does your review include links to multiple sellers to give the reader the option to purchase from the merchant of their choice? So this was one that was talked about a little bit more than uh, the others. And I did a whole interview with Jesse Lakes from Genius Link about this. And, you know, really you end up with a higher conversion rate. 
again, I haven't tested it myself uh, in a proper experimental way, but if you give the visitor, the potential buyer, more information in the form of like essentially pricing and they can go and look and see that a product cost a certain amount from Amazon, Walmart versus B&H photo, they're you know probably going to pick the cheapest one unless there's some other factor involved, like maybe they can get expedited shipping from B&H photo, or maybe they hate Amazon and they live in New York and they're like, I want to order from B&H because it's down the street and I'll get it delivered more quickly. And I'd rather order from B&H than Amazon. So if you give people the option they tend to convert better because I believe, at least this is the way it was explained to me, I believe that they know that they're getting like the right deal, right? That they don't have the hesitancy like, should I shop around more because it could be cheaper elsewhere? And then they get distracted and, and forget to buy anything. So if you give them that choice, it could be a good thing. Okay, so that is... The recap, and Google did give new advice, three new points for new advice for the March 2022 update. So we'll wrap it up with these three, and then we'll uh, we'll tell a couple stories here. So first, are product review updates relevant to ranked list and comparison reviews? So the answer is yes. Product review updates apply to all forms of review content. The best practices we've shared also apply. And the, the we here, this is from Google, okay? So the we is Google. However, due to the shorter nature of ranked list, you may want to demonstrate expertise and reinforce authenticity in a more concise way. Citing pertinent results and including original images right, here's the original images, citing pertinent results and including original images from your test you performed with the product can be a good way to do this. Next, are there any recommendations for reviews recommending, quote, best products? If you recommend a product as the best overall or the best for a certain purpose, be sure to share with the reader why you consider that product the best. What sets it apart from the others in the market? Why is the product particularly suited for its recommended purpose? Be sure to include supporting firsthand evidence. And the third, if I create a review that covers multiple products, should I still create reviews for the products individually? This is a great one. I hear this pretty often. So I'm going to read it again. If I create a review that covers multiple products, should I still create reviews for the products individually? The answer is this, it can be effective to write a high quality ranked list of related products in combination with in-depth single product reviews for each recommended product. If you write both, make sure there's enough useful content in the ranked list for it to stand on its own. So that's a great one. And I think I've heard a couple people mention that they'll, they will do a a list, a best of product list type uh, review where they have several products listed. If they start getting traction and see that certain products are selling quite a few, then they'll go back and do the individual review later. 
they know they're getting a lot of traction with that particular product. So it's converting well. And if they spend time on an individual review, they know that it's probably going to convert well too, because it has converted well in the past on the best of sort of list review. All right. So that covers most of it. Again, this wasn't a core update, which, I mean, if it impact, impacts your site, you know, who really cares? I mean, it's splitting hairs really, but it wasn't a core update. It doesn't affect, you know, quote, all results. It was a specific update for product reviews. If you have feedback, if you saw an impact from the update in March, feedback at doug.show. Would love to hear what you observed and especially if you, you know, did things to recover afterwards. I, uh, well, I was going to say recently, but uh, in the last few months, I did publish an interview with Marty McLeod. He was impacted by one of these updates. Pretty sure it was one of the product review updates. I can't remember which one. It may have been the first rollout, but he spent a few months working on his site, improving old content, really just going back and trying to improve everything on his site and also publish new content. And he was able to recover most of the con most of the traffic that he lost. And I think, you know, I don't know. I wonder if he would have been doing that constant improvement the whole time if he would have been impacted at all. So it's kind of an interesting thing to think about there. All right, here's our uh, side story. So one thing, um, I'm, I'm recording on this Tula mic. I did a, a mention of them. Shit, I don't know. It was a lot of episodes ago. But uh, they, they did send me this mic free to charge. It's kind of a cool one. There's some, you know, decent audio quality, I think. And the form factor is nice. It is a standalone recorder. I think I can record. I think there's like eight gigs of memory or 16. Pretty good amount of memory on here as far as audio goes. And I could plug it into my computer via USB and use it as a USB mic for Zoom or uh, recording my live streams or doing interviews or whatever. So it, it does a really good job with that. It has a handful of buttons on here, which once you get used to the interface, it's not hard to remember. Like I haven't used this microphone in four months or something. And I, I picked it up, turned it on, and you know had to adjust a couple settings really quick, just the volume, you know? But I knew how to hit record and I could see that it's recording. So no big deal there. One of the issues with it is there's no there's no like display or information. So there are several buttons. Like I said, there's one, two, there's six buttons on one side and there are seven on the other. They're kind of labeled with icons. So it's fairly straightforward, you know, play, record, volume up, volume down, gain up, gain down. But one thing that is not on there is a battery life or like what function it's in. And you wouldn't need a big dial on here. I mean, I'm sure it would, you know, drastically change the manufacturer or manufacturing of this device. But the thing is, I had no clue if the battery was charged. Now, I haven't used it much, but I haven't plugged it in. So it was sitting on the shelf for, you know, 
of several months, basically. And I was like, ah, you know, it's supposed to have, I think it's supposed to have like 10 hour battery life if you get it freshly charged and use it. But I have no clue how much the battery life dwindles while it's sitting there. Turns out, uh, I guess quite a bit. So I picked it up and I was going to record this episode yesterday, but it started buzzing at me and it was blinking a light at me. There's maybe like four LEDs on here. And basically I was like, what the fuck? It's blinking at me. It's making a weird noise in the headphones while I'm monitoring as I'm trying to record this. And then I realized, oh, battery must be dead. So I plugged it in, came back a few hours later, and then I was able to, uh, you know, see that the battery charged up. So it's just sort of a touch base with this device. It's, uh, it's good. It's mostly good. I wish that there was more information. So I like knew what, what, um, mode, what status certain things were on, but it potentially would be a bigger device at that point. I mean, as it's, I mean, it's like the size of a very small cell phone. So it's, it's pretty tiny and it's, a great form factor for travel. And I think if I was traveling, it would be, you know, really good. The other thing I think it would be great for, especially like I'm I'm kind of in an echoey room. I decided to record this upstairs. The basement's fine where my studio is. Actually, it's great. It's a great studio down there, but there's no windows and it's very sunny and, you know, Georgie's wants to hang out with me and I don't want her to go up and down the stairs too much. You got to protect those uh, hips as a uh, dog's getting older. And basically I wanted to record upstairs, but upstairs there is, um, you know, it's higher ceilings. There's wood floor in a lot of the space. There's some stuff on the walls, but it's not like the basement where it's, there's hardly any echo. The basement, uh, surprisingly, it is fantastic to record in. There's a lot of good things about the space down there. And it's just, you know, it's very quiet down there. It is a little echoey where I'm where I'm at here at the kitchen table. But what I did, and this is a little little hack if you are recording, let's say I'm interview interviewing you, and you know, I'm like, hey, it's really echoey in there. One thing you can do. Just put your microphone like on on your table and I put a camera bag behind the microphone and then I just got like a a little pillow that sits on the couch like, you know, those decorative pillows that people have. Um, what, What do they call them? A throw pillow. Yeah. So I got a throw pillow. And I just set it up sort of vertically leaning on this uh, camera bag, but it could be anything. It could be like backpack, right? So you just put up the backpack and I've created like a little shelter behind the microphone. So what would happen if I didn't have this set up is there would be sound coming from the wall behind me, in front of me. There would be sound bouncing off from the windows in front of me, and then it would create this echo. But instead, the sound is stopping and then there's no way for the sound to move through the pillow and the camera bag. So you end up like sort of eliminating the echo. Now I brought that up because I'm going to talk about guitars again, but one thing this recorder would probably be really good at in a room like this, there is some echo and natural reverb, which you don't want for a podcast or like a narration kind of situation. But for music, if you're playing guitar, 
then that natural reverb sounds kind of cool. It's why people, you know, sing in the bathroom or sometimes bands will actually record in the bathroom because there's a lot of the flat surfaces. You have a mirror, mirror, you have a shower, you have a natural reverb of a bathroom. And, you know, if you go into maybe like a big space where there's a lot of uh, hard surfaces, maybe like a, a garage or something like that, you'll have some interesting reverb. Now, a garage may not be great. It may end up being sort of a weird sound, but this room with a wood floor and the bigger, the uh, yeah, higher ceilings and then sort of just a bigger space, I could change the tool of the mic instead of just getting this omnidirectional, or sorry, this uh, uni, what is it? Basically, it's a, it's a uh, cardioid uh, pattern, so it's just getting the sound uh, kind of in front of it. But I can change it so it's omnidirectional, so then it'll get sound from all over. And the point is, it would pick up that natural reverb from the room, as well as the direct uh, sound from the guitar. So I've been getting more guitars lately, and I uh, got a new one recently uh, for my birthday down in Santa Fe. I, I'm telling that story in a future episode, so I won't, I won't give it away. But if you check out my Instagram, there's probably going to be a picture of it already out there, along with a few of the other guitars that I got. But my initial, my first guitar that I got was a sort of cheap Fender. It's a Dreadnought. So it's kind of a, a bigger a bigger body, right? So it's a it's just bigger sound. And that's kind of, you know, one of the most popular kind of uh, guitar shapes. So if you think of an acoustic guitar, typically what you imagine is probably going to be a dreadnought and it is, you know, fairly bassy. It's fairly loud because there's a bigger uh, sound box, right? So it's just a bigger guitar. And about maybe a year and a half ago, I started, you know, I don't know how I ran across it, but I started looking at small body guitars. So a lot of times these are called um, like parlor sized in Different manufacturers have different labels, but a parlor size is sort of uh, smaller. They have a dreadnought. Um, you know, a lot of people are familiar with Martin and they have, you know, a, a triple aught kind of size and then they have a double aught, a single aught. But a lot of times you do just see the, the big dreadnoughts. And I have sort of uh, sh- shorter arms and shorter fingers and I realized when I played some of these small body acoustic guitars, like the parlor size, I was like, wow, this actually feels far more comfortable. My arm isn't stretched out as far. And I mean, we're talking just like, you know, maybe a couple inches, but when you're holding your arm out and you're using your, your fretting hand, you do, you know, you, you feel a little tired and it's kind of funny, but just having everything a little bit closer, just a smaller guitar is more comfortable. In fact, I've played some three quarter size guitars and I was like, oh, this, this fits really good. Like that, that feels fantastic. So when I did get a new guitar after that, uh, the Fender, which I've had the Fender for 20 plus years. So it's like maybe 22 years old, 23. I can't, I think I got it in 99, but it's been great. You know, it's a, a it's a good guitar, a solid top, um, but I decided, hey, I'm going to get these small body guitars. And then I started to get a little obsessed with sort of the history of the guitars and stuff like that. So um, 
it's been a while since I've, I've run through. So I have a Gibson LG2, which I, I was actually looking for an L00, which is a little bit smaller even. But, you know, the LG2 is pretty small. In fact, I was playing guitar with uh, Matt Giovannisi. Uh, we we're having some beers and he pulled out his guitar which is a dreadnought size. And he even commented, he was like, oh, your guitar is so small. Like, uh, <laughs> which I, I thanked him for, you know. I take everything as a compliment if it's uh, unclear. But I was like, yeah, it's a little smaller and it, it fits better and it's just a little more comfortable. But um, it also has a different sound too. It's a little more mid-range focused. And that was kind of the music that I was looking to start playing more of, which is sort of, uh, blues and ragtime blues and, and stuff like that finger style type guitar. So anyway, I got, uh, I got that Gibson LG two, uh, standard, which is very nice plays, uh, wonderfully sounds great. I've, I think I've had it a little over a year now. And then uh, a little after that, I got the recording King. It's a 1939 Carson J Robinson guitar. And that is, you know, like I said, 1939, it was actually in very rough shape, cracks. There were issues with it, but uh, somebody rebuilt it. And then I bought it from that person. And those pre-war guitars are ridiculous. I've played a handful now and it's just amazing what the age does to like a handmade wood instrument like that. So then as a, uh, started to get a little obsessed and I was looking at Martin's a little bit, specifically the all mahogany version and a double O size. So this is uh, you know, fairly, fairly small, especially if you have like a double O next to a dreadnought, like there's a very clear difference in the size and the scale length and all that kind of stuff. And I'll, I'll pause here for a second. I'm, I'm curious, people shoot me an email <laughs> And I have been getting more emails, so thank you everyone who sends them in. Let me know. I'm curious, even if you're like if you're into guitars, you're probably enjoying this. If you're not into guitars, I'm curious if it's still interesting because I am passionate about this shit. Or if you're like, come on, Doug, we just want to hear about the SEO stuff. You won't hurt my feelings. So anyway, I browse um Craigslist occasionally just to see if there's anything local, you know, listed, you know, sometimes you could find something local where someone doesn't want to ship it. So it's not going to end up on eBay or reverb or something like that. And, you know, this could apply for anything that you're looking, any used thing that you're looking for. So someone doesn't want to go through the hassle of dealing with listing the product and then shipping it and all that stuff. And they just want to sell it local. I guess uh, Facebook marketplaces and other another area that you could look in. So basically I found this uh, Martin 0015, which is all mahogany. And it was listed for, I think I want to say it was 850. And the, the price that it should have been, it's about 11 to 1200 used. If you buy it brand new, it's about 1500 bucks, 15, 1600 in that price range. It could be a little bit more now um, given inflation and uh, guitar prices have been migrating up a little bit. So I found this listing, emailed the dude and 
basically it, it was 45 minutes from where I live, sort of out in the middle of nowhere, out, out towards Kansas, right? So it's not really in the metro area specifically. It's, um, you know, it's probably an hour from Denver or something like that. So kind of out in the middle of nowhere, not like a population center. And I was like, cool, I'll meet you um, out in a public place. And basically, I didn't even have to haggle hard. I just said, hey, you know, are you flexible on the price? And he dropped to $750 immediately. So, you know, one of the reasons why I bought it, it was such a good deal just off the bat. And then, I mean, he honestly, he didn't clean it up. It was all grimy and dirty and it looked a bit of a mess, but I could tell that it was just, you know, superficial and it just needed a good wipe down and, you know, maybe an hour of cleaning, some new strings, and it would be in good shape. And uh, yeah, so I got that one for $750, which, you know, it's it's fun to get a good deal. I haggled a little bit, but not too much. And I, honestly, I probably could have probably could have got it for 700, but it really wasn't about that. I mean, this, this guy, it was an older dude and he was just trying to, you know, get rid of a guitar that he doesn't play that much. And, you know, I wasn't trying to get the, the lowest, lowest price. I, and the fact is I could probably sell it for, you know, 1100 pretty quickly, most likely. And that was a, that's a fun guitar. Uh, what else did I, did I get anything else here? That's one, one, two, three. And like I said, I'll save the, uh, the other story for the future, but yeah, the, the guitars are pretty fun and I am enjoying the parlor size. I like the sound a little better. I don't need like a loud dreadnought. Like the dreadnought was made as a bigger size so that it could be heard over like banjos and, you know, other bluegrass instruments and stuff like that. So they were like, we're going to make this big body guitar so that it'll be louder. The bass will be louder and it'll be able to stand up to the rest of the band. And number one, I'm not playing in a band. And number two, if I'm playing around here, I don't necessarily need it to be like really loud. And the fact is even the smaller guitars, especially like the older ones. And the, I mean, the guitars that I'm talking about are pretty nice generally, and they have plenty of volume for, you know, what I'm doing. In fact, if I, you know, went out to my backyard and played like probably 15 houses could probably hear me, um, playing just because, well, the houses are a little close together, but generally most guitars, even very cheap ones are going to be loud enough for most purposes for most people. I'm not playing in like a bluegrass band at least not right now. So, okay. Hopefully there was enough SEO information in there. And um, I realized that I paired two things together. If this was a travel topic today, maybe I could tell my bullshit uh, guitar stories and they'd hit a little harder. But I have a feeling there's probably a lot of people who tuned in for the SEO portion and the Google update portion of it. And they were like, dude, what are you talking about? Well, if you're new, I talk about random stuff. So uh, there's a lot of success stories. I interview a lot of people sometimes, especially in the earlier days, I would say like the first hundred episodes, I would tell more random stories, travel stories, um, just information that was unrelated to affiliate marketing. I branch out occasionally, but I do, you know, I do try to hit the SEO, the affiliate marketing, 
the content website, all that kind of stuff. I try to hit that most of the time, but I like to tell stories sometimes too. So if you're, if you're new, uh, certainly check out some of the others. People seem to love these success stories. So I'd point you towards those and that's it for today. We'll catch you on the next episode. 